All right, take your Bibles and open them up to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Um, we're we're going to be in, if you have one of our black Bibles, you can find that on page 821. Uh, so we're back in the Old Testament now, okay, the book of Jonah. If, you're, um, if, if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to keep that Bible, take it home with you, uh, grab the reading plan and, and jump in, okay? Uh, and uh, there's also a little half sheet of paper in there that helps you get oriented with that particular Bible and also some tips on how to get started reading it if you're unfamiliar with that, okay? Um, but I want to encourage you to take that. Last week, we uh, wrapped up 2023. We also say last year, right? We wrapped that up by uh, wrapping up our series through the book of Revelation. We were in that for about 15 weeks. And uh, this morning, we're going to start a four-week series in the book of Jonah. We need to understand that the Bible is made up of a lot of different literary types, okay? Different genres, different writing styles, different things like that. So, so we need to understand the break that we're making here now, okay? We are moving from a book that was full of symbolic imagery now to a book that is full of satirical irony, okay? Different things. That means that we're gonna see some humorously exaggerated stereotypes and extreme circumstances that are designed to communicate some very real and very profound points this is also a narrative, which about 42% of the Bible is, okay? Uh, which means that we're going to, this is going to be delivered to us in story form. Now, this story is filled with characters that don't stick to their stereotypes and miracles that, that don't seem possible. And these things have led many modern thinkers to dismiss this book altogether as a made-up fairy tale. Or maybe, at best, to see it as nothing more than uh, a parable of sorts that uses fictional characters and events to convey a moral truth that people need to understand. But when we consider that Jesus rose from the dead, suddenly the miracles that we will see in this book don't seem so impossible, okay? The book of 2 Kings validates Jonah as a real prophet in Israel's history, and in the New Testament Gospels, Jesus himself validates the events of this book as historical realities, also validates, again, Jonah as a very real person. We'll reference these passages as we work our way through this book. Maybe you are unfamiliar with the book of Jonah. You've heard of Jonah, maybe some kids' stories or something like that, or maybe the only thing that you really know about the book of Jonah is that he gets swallowed by a whale, Right? you might be surprised to find that the text never actually calls it a whale, but a big fish. We'll get to that. We'll start to see that at the end this morning. Either way, the main point of the book doesn't revolve around this sea creature that swallows Jonah, although that th tends to be the thing that sticks in our mind, right? Why? Because it feels so unbelievable, right? To quote an early 20th century British preacher, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. You see, this book isn't about a fish or a whale or whatever you want to call it. It's not even mainly about Jonah, even though his name is on the title of the book. This book is about the God who loves his enemies and pours out his sovereign grace on undeserving sinners of every kind. Normally the prophetic books in the Old Testament are about what God has to say through the prophet to someone else, but this book is unique in the sense that it is all about what God has to say, not through the prophet, but to the prophet. And he's gonna use some unlikely people to communicate these truths to Jonah. 
When we pay attention to what God has to say to Jonah, we're gonna realize that God has the same things to say to you and me. Not because we are prophets, but because we are prone to have hearts that are more like Jonah's and less like God's. The layout of this book is very simple. It consists of two parallel episodes, four chapters. First two chapters, one and two, God gives Jonah a command and he disobeys it and then we see all the things that ensue. And the second uh, episode is in chapters three and four and God gives Jonah the same command, but this time Jonah obeys and we see all the things that ensue after that. But even though Jonah's actions change, he obeys when God gives him a command the second time. His attitude stays the same. As we work our way through this book, my prayer then is that God would use his word and his spirit not only to bring our actions in line with what God wants instead of what we want, but actually also our attitudes. Because behavior is not the, the thing ultimately. What we believe is how we behave. We need both things, our thoughts, our actions to line up with God's own heart and we're going we're gonna to see this morning that we all have a long way to go. And yet for that, there is abundant grace in Jesus Christ. So I want to pray, ask for the Lord's help, and we'll dig in together. Father, thank you that your word is eternal, that it stands firm. We pray this morning that uh, by your word and your spirit, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to watch a man on a downward spiral, okay? Like a disoriented airplane pilot who, who sends his plane barreling nose first toward the earth, and he's unable to control the descent. He's unable to pull himself up. You see, over and over, the Bible consistently pictures human beings going their own way, and doing what they want, living for themselves. And when things don't go their way, they dig their heels in even further and make things worse for themselves. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. When it comes to our relationship with God, this downward spiral starts with an act of sinful disobedience. We disobey the Lord and his commands. But then it's perpetuated. The, the rapid descent continues through this persistent attitude of unrepentance. And here's where, where we get into this foolish thinking. We think sometimes that we can out-stubborn God. You ever been there? If I, just, if I just keep going this way, maybe the Lord will change his mind, right? Or even though we know we're wrong, we'd rather try to fix it ourselves or ignore the truth altogether all than to actually admit and confess what we've done is wrong and that we need God's help let alone ask then for God's help. But we can't outstubborn God. And we need to know that that's very good news. See, God's never okay with our downward spirals, but he is patient with us in the midst of them. So here's what we're gonna see this morning through Jonah chapter one. When we rebellious, rebelliously run from God in our stubborn sin, he relentlessly pursues us with his sovereign grace. When we rebelliously run from God in our stubborn sin, he relentlessly pursues us with his sovereign grace. This is a story, so we're gonna read it that way. So let's dig in and see this reality unfold together. 
Verses one and two. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come before me. Now, this book opens with a phrase that's commonly used in the Old Testament prophetic books to identify God's prophets. So right off the bat, we're meant to understand that Jonah was a prophet of God because the word of the Lord came to him, okay? Which, which then should set our minds uh, uh, accordingly when we think about the prophets of God in the Old Testament and what they were called to do. They were people that God gave a message to for his people, But God was sending this prophet on a mission to Nineveh. Now, again, it's not unusual for God to send his prophets on a mission with a message, but it is unusual for God to send his prophets to deliver that message to non-Israelites, to Gentiles. There are a few other Old Testament prophets who spoke about uh, who spoke about Gentiles. If you remember, a couple years ago, we went through Obadiah, and his whole uh, message was against the the uh, uh, the nation of Edom, descendants of Esau. But Jonah is the only Israelite prophet who was actually commissioned by God specifically to leave and go to a group of non-Israelites and preach to them. In the book of 2 Kings, it tells us that Jonah prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. He was this wicked king uh, among a list of wicked kings who ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. His reign was 793 to 753 BC. Uh, The northern kingdom had been, at that point, greatly weakened by the Assyrians about a century earlier. They were the world power at that time. But despite this, this wickedness of Jeroboam II, God faithfully kept Israel from being totally wiped out by allowing Jeroboam to expand or restore Israel's borders and experience a time of peace and prosperity. All of these things that Jonah actually prophesied about during that time. Now, in that time, Jonah had seen firsthand God's grace extended to undeserving sinners. Jeroboam didn't deserve any of that. He was a very wicked man. In fact, most of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom split into two kingdoms, north and south, most of the northern kings were terrible. Only a few of the southern kings were any good. But we know that, the, that Jesus himself says no one is good, right? And so it's not even the, the southern kingdoms. There's, there's not anything that we can point in those kings' lives other than their dependence upon the Lord that would make them do good things. Jonah wasn't the only prophet in his time. God had others like Hosea and Amos, and he used them actually to prophesy almost an opposite message to Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, not contradicting, but just understanding the timeline and the time frame of these prophecies and when they were fulfilled. They prophesied against the northern kingdom because of this downward spiral into spiritual depravity and disobedience to God. Those prophets called the people of the northern kingdom to repent, and they warned them that if they continued in rebellion against God, God would execute his justice against them by allowing these Assyrians to capture them and send them into exile. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you know that in 722 BC, that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came in, they destroyed the, uh, Jerusalem. They took a whole bunch of people captive and sent them into exile. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was the heart. It was the, 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 the main place. When God called it the great city here, 
he wasn't actually talking about how amazing it was, okay? If you were with us during our series through the book of Revelation, you might recognize this language. The great city, where did we hear that before in Revelation? When Babylon was mentioned, right? Over and over and over again, it was called the great city. Why? Because of its great evil. Because every, Babylon was, was, was this symbol for every empire that sets itself up in opposition to God and God's people. Nineveh in that day was a city in opposition to God and God's people and God took note of their evil. And so when God told Jonah to go preach against Nineveh, you would think that as, as like the one prophet that gets to go out to the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, and tell them what's up, Jonah would jump at the chance to go, right? But we're about to see that, that he does something that we won't totally expect. You might already understand because maybe you're familiar with this, but let's try to get in the mindset of discovering these things as we go, okay? That's what the early readers would have done. Look at verse three. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into, into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now, anyone familiar with Psalm 139 will immediately recognize the foolishness of trying to flee from the Lord's presence, right? And to emphasize Jonah's foolishness, we're told twice here that that's exactly what he was trying to do, to flee from the Lord's presence, to flee from the Lord's presence. He's going to Tarshish. He's going to Tarshish. This repetitive language is emphasizing this ridiculous idea that Jonah could leave God behind. Jonah himself would have been familiar with these verses from this famous psalm of David, Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. From 2 Kings 14, we know that Jonah lived in a small town called Gath Hefer, great name for a town. It was located high up in the foothills, about three miles northeast of Nazareth, okay? That would put Nineveh then about 500 miles northeast of where Jonah lived, and it would have been no small journey to get there. About 20 miles a day is what you could cover. But instead of obeying God and heading to, to northeast to Nineveh, Jonah took off, and he headed 60 miles southwest to a town called Joppa. Now, that would have given him at least three days. Okay, listen, he doesn't have Spotify. He can't put on a playlist and, like, zone out while he's going. He's left alone with his thoughts. Would have given him three days at least to think about his decision to disobey God, to change his mind, and to turn around and go back. Did he do it? No. He ran further and further away. You see, he was in a downward spiral. He's disoriented and out of control, even though he thinks he's in control. And we can relate to Jonah's stubborn denial, right? It's hard to admit when we are wrong, even when we know that we are wrong. 
So we just keep digging ourselves deeper into a hole because we're too prideful to confess our wrongdoing and turn back. The downward spiral is fueled by this persistent attitude of unrepentance. Tarshish was 3,000 miles from Nineveh in the complete opposite direction. To borrow the words from Psalm 139, it was considered in that day the western limits of the world. The end of the earth. And Jonah was seeking to settle there and stay as far away from Nineveh and from God as possible. But where can one go from his spirit? Where can one go to flee from the presence of the Lord? Now, we're not told why Jonah disobeyed God. Maybe you know this because you've read this before. Why he was fleeing from the Lord's presence and and avoiding going to Nineveh. We won't actually find that out until we get to chapter 4. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing this week. For now, though, it's enough for us to know that he was deliberately disobeying the Lord. And the language here emphasizes this downward spiral of disobedience. Did you catch all of these? He went down to Joppa, right? Then he went down into the ship that he was going, uh, uh, that was going to take him to Tarshish. His physical descent was foreshadowing his spiritual descent. And Jonah was sinking lower and lower and lower. I think it's fascinating, the different genres of, of the Bible and how God, in his sovereign grace, used the personalities of the writers and yet also uh, the Spirit himself to carry them along and to use language and put things in that we are meant to see and make connections like this. Those words are purposeful. Jonah went down. He went down. He went down. And that's not the last time we're going to see that in this chapter. Like Adam and Eve did after they disobeyed God, Jonah was trying to hide from the Lord. But he was about to find out that even the darkness of the ship's hull is not dark to God. You can't hide from God anywhere. Look at verses 4 through 6. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it because their evil had come up before him. But Jonah, what did he do? He disobeyed God's command. And now guess what? It's Jonah's evil that has come up before the Lord. This is sin. This is, disobedience to God is sin. And God never calls it anything other than that. Ironically, it's now Jonah who is being preached against, but not by a prophet, by a pagan ship captain. The, the, most, the least likely person you would think of actually appears more righteous than the, the man of God as the prophets were called in those days. God may have stopped Jonah from running away initially, or may not, excuse me, have stopped Jonah from running away initially, but that doesn't mean that God was indifferent about Jonah's sinful disobedience. 
He didn't just throw the great wind onto the sea and stir up the great storm for theatrics like he was bored and needed something to do, right? He didn't just, uh, 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 the, the, the sailors were, were used to this, to, uh, to storms on the sea, right? That, that's what they do. They're, they're familiar with these things. But even the sailors themselves understood that this storm was different than anything else they had ever experienced. They immediately recognized that this storm came from the sovereign hand of a divine being, but they didn't know which God was responsible. So each sailor just started yelling, crying out to his own God, hoping that that God would be the one that would calm the sea and bring them peace. When none of their gods answered, because we need to know this, false gods can't answer. When none of their gods answered, the sailors started throwing cargo into the sea while the Lord continued throwing wind onto the sea. And guess who's going to win that throwing match? Right? The sailors' desperate attempts to stay God's hand and save themselves, listen, no use at all. No use at all. The ship still threatened to break apart. Notice the language again in here, uh, again here in verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship. The downward spiral continues. He had fallen into a deep sleep. It's just this picture of him going further and further down. He's completely oblivious to what's going on. It's possible, yes, that he fell asleep relieved, finally getting on the ship and like, ah, we're sailing. Made it. We're going to Tarshish. Nineveh's in the rearview mirror. I don't think they had rearview mirrors back then, but if they did, right? But I wonder if it's more likely that he was exhausted, not from avoiding Nineveh, but from avoiding God. Maybe you can relate to that as a follower of Christ. When we sin against God, his Holy Spirit who lives in us convicts our hearts and troubles our consciences to keep us from having settled peace with our sin. Listen, it's uncomfortable grace. Did you know those words can go together? It's uncomfortable grace designed to help us run to God instead of away from him. The longer that we try to avoid God, the more exhausted we become. It doesn't just take a mental and spiritual toll on us. It actually also takes a physical toll on our bodies. Psalm 38 gives a helpful description of this. I'd encourage you to go read that this week and see if you can relate to the words of King David. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to run from God. Whatever Jonah's reason for sleeping was, he wasn't asleep for very much longer when the ship captain came down and woke him up with words that echoed God's initial call to him in verse two. Did you catch that? Get up. Speak. And this prophet of Israel had to be told by a pagan ship captain to pray to his God. At this point, the pagan ship captain had more awareness of the need for God's grace, this God that he didn't even know, than the prophet did. Prayer was the last thing on Jonah's mind. He was fleeing from the Lord's presence, and to pray means that you need to acknowledge the Lord's presence, right? Jonah ignored the ship captain's words just like he ignored God's words, and so the sailors were still stuck, and so they resorted to a different tactic. Look at verse 7. Through 10. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots 
Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. And so they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? I love this. He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. Yahweh there, the name of God. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what have you done? Are you crazy, Jonah? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. I worship this God and I'm running from him. Right? And we're not told how many sailors were on the ship, but it was probably a larger ship since it had to travel so far all the way to Tarshish. And a large ship would have had quite a few sailors. So if you think about rolling the dice, casting the lots, Jonah's odds of being singled out by a dice roll seem pretty slim when you, when you put him in the pool of all the people on the ship. But we know this, our God does not play the odds, right? Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Major theme throughout the book of Jonah is this sovereignty of God. He orders and governs all things according to his good purpose and pleasure and does so for the good of his people, people that need his grace. The reason the sailors were casting lots in the first place is because the Lord threw this great wind onto the sea and stirred up such a great storm that the ship threatened to break apart and the sailors weren't leaving things up to chance here. They're not just like suddenly playing dice games. They're trying to figure out what the problem is so they can remedy it. And they know it's beyond them. They're just trying to figure out which deity in their minds they need to talk to. They believed that a divine being would sovereignly direct this cast lot to reveal who was to blame for the trouble that they were in, and that's exactly what happened. They're exhibiting more faith here than Jonah. That word trouble in verses 7 and 8 is the same Hebrew word that gets translated as evil in verse 2. Just as the evil of the Ninevites had come up before God, now Jonah's evil had not only come up before God, but now also before the sailors. His sin had caused them trouble. Listen, when we're in a downward spiral spiritually, we don't often think about how our sin affects others. Sometimes other people suffer the consequences of our disobedience to God. We wound the people around us, and the longer that we persist in this attitude of unrepentance, the bigger those wounds get, and the more people we tend to hurt. Sin has consequences. This is why we need to remember the gospel and run to God instead of away from him. Listen, This is the gospel because of Jesus. We don't have to try to hide our blame. We just sang all kinds of songs this morning about that, freely confessing our our hopelessness and the hope that we have in Christ. We don't have to fear being singled out as the guilty one. We, We can freely confess our sin and seek the forgiveness that we need because this is the gospel right here. Jesus willingly took our blame and our punishment. On the cross, he voluntarily suffered the consequences for our sin and our disobedience to God. When our evil came up before the Lord, you know what the Lord did? 
the Lord came down to us. The word of the Lord became flesh and came to this world, not to prophets, but to undeserving sinners. When the father told the son to get up and go, Jesus didn't get up and flee. He got up and went. He obeyed the father perfectly, perfectly, lived a life without sin. He could not be blamed for any trouble that we are in. He preached against sinners. He warned them of God's judgment because of their evil. He also preached the forgiveness of sins for everyone who flees not from God, but from their sin and runs to God in repentance. And then he secured that forgiveness by receiving God's judgment and dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And it gets better. He rose from the grave to prove his own innocence and to prove that God has considered lowly people like us. And that we won't perish if we rely on Jesus Christ. Oh, let's not forget that, right? Listen, there's no downward spiral that you get yourself into that Jesus cannot get you out of. We need to hear this. It doesn't matter how far you've gone down. If you humble yourself before the Lord and you cry out to him for rescue, Jesus will meet you there at your lowest point and he will lift you up. Is there better news than that? Don't stubbornly dig your heels in more. Don't foolishly try to flee from the presence of the Lord. You can't do it. Run. Not away, but to Run once again to Jesus Christ in dependence upon him. Confidence in his word, the, the promise that he makes that he will forgive and cleanse us of our sins if we confess them to him. Maybe you've been running from God your whole life. Maybe you've been living for yourself instead of for the one who created you. Let me just ask you a couple of questions. How are things going in your life? You got some storms? raging seas? Does it feel like things are falling apart? Maybe, maybe, probably, that's God's sovereign grace, his uncomfortable grace, this, that the Lord is using those things that seize you with great fear to get your attention and cause you to cry out to him for rescue. And stop trying to get out of it on your own. You can try as much as you want to get rid of your cargo and lighten your load. But you'll never win that. Why? Because the heavy burden of sin can only be removed at the cross of Christ. That's it. So why not then cry out to him in faith? Why not confess your sin and admit your blame? Get in line with the rest of us. This is what we do as followers of Christ. We continue in repentance. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Confess your sin, admit your blame. Seek his forgiveness and trust then in his sin-forgiving work on the cross. Listen, flee from your sin, not from Christ. Run to Jesus. The risen Jesus. These sailors were eager to cry out to Jonah's God, even if Jonah wasn't. 
When they found out that Jonah was to blame for the storm, they asked him all those questions in verse eight in order to narrow down who his God was. Because in those days, different gods were readily associated with different countries and people groups. Religion and nationality went together. When Jonah told them that he worshiped the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land, the sailors were beside themselves with fear. Why? They're on the sea and it's raging, right? And rightfully so. They should be afraid because they were on this ship that was threatening to break apart because of this stormy sea. Can you hear the irony in Jonah's words in verse 9? He was declaring God's sovereign rule over everything, including their gods, even as he was deliberately disobeying his own sovereign God. This is the satire. This is the humorous irony, right? The Hebrew word translated in English as worship here literally means to fear. We've heard this word already. But this, this time it means to have awe and reverence, neither of which Jonah was exhibiting. It's a stark contrast to the fear that the pagan sailors were displaying. Yes, they were terrified, but they also showed great reverence for the God who made the sea and the dry land when they called Jonah out in verse 10 for fleeing from this Lord and his presence. What, are you, what have you done? Like, did, did you just hear the words coming out of your mouth, Jonah? You're running from that God? And their reverence for Jonah's God was made clear in their desire to obey Jonah's God. Let's keep going, verse 11 and 12. So they said to him, Jonah, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. These pagan sailors, these, these godless men or false god men, however you say that, men with false gods. They were eager to appease Jonah's God. They were ready to do whatever the Lord required of them. Again, more irony that contrasts with Jonah's attitude. This rebellious attitude that he had toward God. At first glance, though, it may seem like Jonah finally had a change of heart in verse 12. Right? He confessed that he was the one to blame for all the trouble that they were in, and he offered himself as this sacrifice in order to spare their lives. But we need to read a little closer because I wonder if he was really being that selfless. Let's think about this for a moment. He can't go to Nineveh if he's dead, right? Can't do it. Can't go to Nineveh. Maybe that's the way he finally gets rid of the Lord. And what better way then to guarantee that than to be thrown into a raging sea, right? Hey, guys, it's my fault. Throw me overboard. But here's the thing. If the sailors threw him overboard, then they would be the ones that are responsible for his death instead of him. Just when we thought Jonah couldn't sink any lower, we see him spiraling further downward. Let's finish it out, 13 through 17. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. And then they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they, made, uh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days 
and three nights. The men were seized with fear, and Jonah was seized by a fish. Right? Normally, pagan sailors wouldn't have thought twice about throwing a man overboard if it meant saving their own lives. Why? Because pagan people live for themselves. They're the center of their world. That's what it means to be pagan. But these sailors don't stick to their own stereotype. Again, satirical irony, right? They had compassion on Jonah and they continued to risk their own lives in order to preserve his more irony. They tried with all their might to escape the raging sea and to get safely to dry land. Oh, but alas, this God of Jonah's is the God of the sea and the dry land, right? Where can I go to escape your presence? There was no escaping his presence and no overcoming his power. He made the sea rage against them more and more. So they did what Jonah should have done in the first place. They cried out to the Lord. They acknowledged God's sovereignty and then they begged him for mercy. They knew that, God had, uh, that they had to throw Jonah overboard, but they weren't careless about it. In fact, they, they actually went out of their way, took great care to avoid sinning against God by pleading with him not to find them guilty for Jonah's death. Lord, there's no other way. Please don't hold us guilty for this man's death, for innocent blood. As if Jonah is innocent in any sense of the word. They were far more concerned about obeying the Lord than Jonah was. And when God responded to their cries by calming the sea, these pagan sailors not the Hebrew prophet who worshipped the Lord, were the ones who worshipped the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. More irony. And let's not miss the reality that even the wind and the waves were more obedient to the Lord than Jonah, right? As soon as the sailors threw him overboard, the sea stopped immediately raging because God who created the sea did as he pleased and made it stop. Even the fish obeyed more than Jonah. God appointed, it says. He appointed this fish to swallow Jonah, and that's what happened. In his sovereign grace, God sent that fish to that spot at that time to swallow the prophet who refused to go where God was sending him. And the fish did exactly what God had appointed it to do. Jonah wanted to be swallowed by the sea, but instead he was swallowed by a fish so he wouldn't perish. Only a God of sovereign grace could orchestrate something so weird. And amazing. Jonah wasn't in Nineveh yet. But he didn't make it to Tarshish either. And yet he paid for the trip, right? One commentator had this to say about it. When you run away from the Lord, you never get where you're going and you always pay your own fare. Another commentator wrote, every step of disobedience is a costly step downhill Throughout this entire chapter, we've seen Jonah descend lower and lower physically. He left his hometown high up in the foothills, and he fled to the sea-level town of Joppa. From there, he went down into the belly of a ship, and then he was eventually thrown overboard into the sea under the ship, and finally into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, lower and lower and lower and lower physically. And Jonah's physical downward spiral points us to his spiritual downward spiral. He kept trying to get away from the Lord but it only got him further and further into trouble and it costs him more and more. But we're not gonna be shown, or we're not being shown Jonah's downward spiral so that we can shake our heads at him and have a good laugh at his expense. 
No, Jonah's spiritual downward spiral is meant to actually expose our own tendency to do the very same thing. We have to laugh, otherwise we have to admit that it's true about us too, right? You see, our downward spirals are just as self-destructive as his. They start with an act of sinful disobedience and they continue the descent through a persistent attitude of unrepentance. And the lower we go, the more it costs us and the more we just want to give up altogether. Oftentimes we know we're making things worse and worse for ourselves and even for those around us, but we feel like we're too far down to come back from what we've done. Listen, this is why we need Jesus. Time and again, in Matthew 12, he said, for as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus went all the way down into death because of our stubborn refusal to obey God. But guess what, church? Jesus came back from the dead. He came back up, out of the grave, That means that there is no depth of disobedience that we can get ourselves into that Christ cannot bring us out of. Isn't that good news? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's Paul's argument in Romans 6, the beginning of it. Brothers and sisters dearly loved, we need to know this. Christ's death was our death, and now Christ's life is our life. We don't need to try to climb back up the spiral of disobedience by our own obedience. It's impossible to do. You know why? Because that's a slide and not a staircase. It only goes down. But when we rest in the obedience of Christ and in his righteousness, what does he do? He lifts us up and enables our obedience then because we still are called to obey, but he enables our obedience to become worship instead of work. And so we can freely obey the Father because the Son has graciously redeemed us. Are you fleeing from sin? Or are you fleeing from the Lord's presence? It's foolish. You don't have to stay in the downward spiral. You don't have to persist in an attitude of unrepentance. You can cry out to Jesus and you should cry out to Jesus. Don't run away from him. Run to him. God is never okay with our downward spirals, but he is patient with us in the midst of them. That's good news, isn't it? When we rebelliously run from God in our stubborn sin, he relentlessly pursues us with his sovereign grace. Sometimes we don't immediately recognize that grace because it comes in ways that don't look like grace, like a raging storm or a giant fish. no matter how terrifying or strange that grace is, listen to me, it always comes. Always comes because we cannot out-stubborn God and we cannot flee from his presence. And church, that is very, very good news.
Father, we thank you for your grace that pursues us even when we don't want to be chased. When we're running full sprint away from you, you patiently, lovingly, persistently track us down and bring us back. Thank you that in Christ, that grace never runs out. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in, uh, in, in our deeper awareness of that grace than to respond with obedience, not because we're trying to pay for something we could never earn, but because we can freely do what you've called us to do. Christ's obedience and his righteousness credited to our account makes our obedience possible and joyful because you've placed your spirit in us so that we can never run from your presence. Lord, teach us not to want to. We love you and we thank you for this reminder of our own need and this beautiful reminder of the need that you have met for us again and again in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.